This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight at the RoboDebt Royal Commission, former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull says he raised concerns about the illegal scheme but was advised it was lawful. Also, supermarkets scramble to prevent supply issues after the collapse of a major freight business. Some fear it could lead to job losses in other parts of the food industry. And the landmark treaty offering protection for the world's oceans. Oh, I was amazed, really, really amazed. You have a vast range of countries from the poorest to the richest and different political and jurisdictional systems. So I can just imagine that this must have been a major, major undertaking. First tonight, the former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has told the Royal Commission into the robo-debt scheme he never considered the legality of the debt recovery policy because he believed it had been checked during the development phase. The policy was introduced in full during his term in office and he pointed to documents presented to Cabinet which indicated all the necessary legal checks had been done. The robo-debt scheme was later found to have been illegal and the government was forced to pay compensation to those who'd been treated unfairly. Rachel Mealy reports. Malcolm Turnbull is the second former Prime Minister to front the Royal Commission into the robo-debt scheme. Yes, the next witness is the Honourable Malcolm Turnbull AC. Uh, Mr Turnbull, will you take an oath or an affirmation? I'll take an oath, Commissioner. Malcolm Turnbull gave evidence to the Commission via video link from Sydney. He says during his term as Prime Minister, he allowed ministers to go about the day-to-day business of their departments. I, I ran and committed to run when I became Prime Minister a traditional Cabinet government. Uh, it, the government was not run out of the Prime Minister's office, as uh, some other Prime Ministers have sought to do. I was very clear that I expected ministers to take responsibility for their departments and portfolios and for decision-making by the government to be collegiate and run through the cabinet process. When Malcolm Turnbull took over as Prime Minister in late 2015, the robo-debt policy was already up and running as an initial pilot program and was then introduced more formally in July 2016. He says it didn't ever occur to him to question the foundations of the policy. Cabinet was told that it was it was lawful in the sense it was it was consistent with the legislation. He says he raised concerns with the Minister for Human Services, but the legality of the system was never discussed. I did not turn my mind to the legality of the program. It never occurred to us that it was unauthorised. So my, my concern was essentially accuracy and fairness. That was what we were trying. That was concern from me and my office. Um, we hadn't didn't turn our mind to uh, legality uh, or, you know, lawfulness. Uh, because uh, we'd assumed that 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 was as as it had been represented. Malcolm Turnbull pointed to a Cabinet submission from 2014 in which it was expressly stated that no new legislation would be required for the introduction of the policy. He says when problems with the scheme were raised in the media in early 2017, he asked the relevant Minister Alan Tudge what was happening. There is a 
a WhatsApp here where you can see on the 20th of January 2017 where I say, Alan, we need a frank assessment of what the problems are and what is happening to fix them. Are you sure your department is giving you the right advice on what is happening? So, you know, I, I guess I was pressing him, Commissioner, to do his job. But Malcolm Turnbull says he regarded Alan Tudge as a competent minister. Alan Tudge, I, I always regarded as a, a technocrat. He was a management consultant. He had a lot of experience. I didn't, uh, I, I didn't regard him as being a, a negligent or incompetent or uh, careless minister. The former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull ending that report from Rachel Mealy. Farmers and supermarkets are scrambling to protect Australia's food supply chain after the collapse of a major national transport company. Scott's refrigerated logistics went into voluntary administration less than a week ago and attempts to find a buyer have failed. Angus Randall has more. Around Bundaberg in Queensland, watermelons are just weeks away from being harvested and farmers are desperate to find new transport for their crops after Scott's refrigerated logistics collapsed. Jonathan Davey is the Executive Officer of Melons Australia. Melons can't do around at all, unfortunately. It'll be a decision for the growers as to whether they pick, when they pick, uh, and a lot of that will probably be based on whether they can get it off the farm and, and into the consumers. There isn't just a whole heap of latent capacity in the, in the freight space where you can just pick up the phone and call someone else up and the next day they're picking up your fruit. Before they went into administration last week, Scott's trucks were covering 500,000 kilometres a day. That's more than 30 laps of Australia. It's a dramatic and rapid collapse from voluntary administration to going under in the space of a week. Scott Langdon is from Receiver Quartermentha. We went out and actively sought interested parties to see who would be able to buy the business and continue it as a going concern. But given the financial position of the business and the severity of the cash flow, the negative position that business found itself within, we were only able to run a very short sale process. The management team and our team are doing everything possible to minimise the damage to, to, to customers and to ensure we can still pick up the produce and also you know, get it onto the shelf. If we had some more financial assistance, we could see the business close in a, in a very dignified way, in a, in a way that has harm minimisation to employees and customers. But um, ultimately, the business will be wound up and, and the employees will not be employees of Scott's going forward. Scott's was the sole supplier of refrigerated products to Coles and Aldi. Richard Olson is the New South Wales and Queensland State Secretary of the Transport Workers Union. Here we have a contractor who has been contracting to major retailers, including the likes of Aldi, who have made millions of dollars of profit. Yet the, the contractor, the main contractor, them is now gone broke. Now there's something wrong with that chain. Coles and Aldi say they have contingency plans to ensure the continued stocking of supermarket shelves, including working with other transport partners. They've been pushing back against comments from the union. Richard Olson warns there may be other workers in the supply chain out of a job. It would not be unreasonable to think that there is more to follow as a result of Scott 
folding, but hopefully it will be minimal. There will be a rippling effect. There are plenty of companies that have been contracting to Scott, so that may well be out of job and therefore further employees would find themselves out of work. The collapse of Scott's leaves 1,500 people out of work. David Smith drives long haulage trucks across the country. He's the chair of the Australian Trucking Association. He's hopeful drivers will quickly find work. Even five years ago, if you had said to me that we'd end up parking trucks because we didn't have qualified drivers to drive them, I would have laughed at you. But that's now happened. That's a reality of today's world, yeah. So I would know very few transport operators that aren't on the hunt for a good, reliable driver or two. Pre-COVID, we were sort of living a knife edge looking for drivers then, meaning was right on that threshold of being short. COVID sort of pushed us over the top, if you like, where now uh, there's just not enough drivers. It's that simple, mate. The Albanese government says it's disappointed to learn that Scots is being liquidated and has urged all parties to work together quickly to reach an agreement that keeps trucks on the road and food on the shelves. Angus Randall reporting. The Northern Territory government says it doesn't intend to investigate why people living near the world's biggest manganese mine on a remote offshore island are recording high levels of heavy metals in their bodies. But the Aboriginal Land Council that gets most of its income from the mine says it is going to assess whether dust from the site is affecting the health of the local population. Jane Barden has more. Angela Waramura has moved off Groot Island off the NT's Arnhem Land coast, but she's still worried about what impact manganese dust from the huge South 32 Gemco mine could be having on her family in adjacent Indigenous communities. You can see down the roads, most trees, also like the short um, shrub trees, are just laid with dust. The leaves, you can just go along and wipe. The ABC revealed a year ago a University of Queensland study of islanders' nails and hair found they contained concerningly high levels of manganese. Last month, the ABC also reported the European Union's Copernicus satellite system has recorded regular dangerously high levels of fine PM2.5 dust particles over Groot Island. The system's managers can't pinpoint the source and say there's margin for error in areas which don't provide air monitoring data from ground stations. What concerns me is I have cousins, I have uncles, I have my mum's sisters and brothers who live there as well and other families that live there, children especially, you know, who have really bad asthma. Then when they leave for a little bit, they come to Darwin for a month, six weeks, it's not so bad. The mining company South32 says it's trying to reduce dust by sealing roads and using watering trucks. It says it had some exceedances of fine PM2.5 dust from its operation before July 2022 and has worked hard to prevent further occurrences. Asked whether the government will investigate, the NT Mines Minister Nicole Manison says the existing regime is fine. There is very strong management around the environment, around the mines' environmental obligations and making sure that they're taking care of the community. 
there is close monitoring on issues, on environmental issues and human health, uh, and they'll continue to do that. The NT Chief Minister Natasha Files isn't planning any health investigations and says individuals with health conditions can request tests. In terms of um, the mine on Groot Island, uh, that has been in the community for a very long time and we make sure that there is the highest standards in terms of both environmental and public health. The company has said that it has exceeded its dust allowances. Is that something that the mines department should be actually doing something about? So I would have to get the specifics on that mine, but what I can say is that um, across the Territory there is strong regulation, there is strong monitoring. We do sometimes see naturally occurring issues. That's disappointed Angela Waramora. Government needs to step in, like really. My people need reassessment on their health and and a lot of them are afraid to speak up as well. Part-time NT school teacher Jeff Ashman was the first non-Indigenous person to start publicly asking questions about the hair tests. He's also disappointed by the government's response. It's basically sheer negligence because the community is right on the edge of the pits of the mine. The situation is appalling. And uh, I think we all should be ashamed of this. South 32 reports its mine dust results to the Anandiliakwa Land Council, which derives most of its income from the mine. The council wouldn't be interviewed, but it has said it's working with South 32 to design further investigations to find out whether there have been health impacts from manganese mining. At the Federal Parliament Budget Estimates Committee, the Land Council's chief executive, Mark Hewitt, told Independent Senator Lydia Thorpe the hair and nails study it commissioned was inconclusive. The World Health Organisation advises breathing in low levels of manganese can cause damage to the brain as well as respiratory and reproductive systems. Can you confidently say that people in the community properly understand these health risks? There was no indication of cognitive impairment or physical damage to people. It must be acknowledged that manganese occurs naturally in the environment of Groot. So it's inevitable that manganese does come into the nervous system of people. Angela Waramura is urging her community to get tested. If you think you have health concerns from this mine, go and get yourself tested fully, assessed. Get your proof, your evidence. Don't be afraid. Groot Islander Angela Wurramara talking to Jane Barden. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. The establishment of a national register of Aboriginal deaths in custody could be getting closer, with the federal government again backing the plan. But it's emphasising the states are responsible for the management of prisons. That's prompting some First Nations groups to call for a national Aboriginal justice body to help reduce the number of Indigenous people ending up in jail in the first place. Rachel Hayter reports. He's considered the father of reconciliation, And Senator Pat Dodson says successive governments, including his own, have not done enough to prevent Aboriginal deaths in custody. Responding today, government frontbencher Tony Burke reaffirmed a Labor election commitment. One of the things that has to happen nationally is for there to be a national register. We did at the election make a commitment to be able to deliver on the national register. Uh, So that part of it we're already committed to. But he's warned jurisdiction makes it challenging. The states run 
run the prison system. Uh, and so, therefore, it's a case of the extent to bringing them together. Ultimately, the decision on state laws is still going to rest with them. Associate Professor Hannah McGlade is a member of the United Nations Permanent Forum for Indigenous Issues. A national Aboriginal justice body should be established. And, and they certainly have got the ability to do just that. She says Aboriginal overrepresentation in the justice system warrants federal intervention. The Commonwealth cannot keep saying this is a state's matter and there's little we can do. That's just not true. And the Commonwealth is responsible for leading Australia's commitments to our, our treaty obligations under UN law, in particular our obligations to ensure, ensure that we uphold old racial equality and and prohibit cruel and inhumane practices in prisons. And it's failing to do that, clearly. Hannah McGlade says states are passing laws in conflict with the Royal Commission recommendation that Aboriginal imprisonment should be a matter of last resort. What we've seen in states, particularly West Australia and Queensland, recently have been the introduction of regressive laws, punitive laws, which will see increased Aboriginal incarceration, including youth incarceration. Martin Hodgson is a senior advocate with the Foreign Prisoner Support Service. He says we already know Aboriginal people are dying in jail. A register would be very low on my list of priorities. He doesn't believe a national register would make any difference. We know the numbers of deaths. We know when they occur. I don't really see how any further data is required. We know what the causes are. We know why it happens. I just think this is a very small offer on a problem that's far greater than anything this sort of attempt will, will fix. Martin Hodgson says the drivers of custody deaths are well understood. Over-policing is the single biggest issue uh, that causes Aboriginal deaths in custody. So a reduction in pol of policing and over-policing of Aboriginal communities and an increase in funding to Aboriginal-run social services in those communities. And he thinks a register misses the point. Anything other than reducing the number of Aboriginal people in custody and ensuring that imprisonment is a last resort is not effective policy making, and it's not policy making based in research, evidence, or what is happening in the real world. Tamara Walsh is a professor of law at the University of Queensland. She runs the UQ Deaths in Custody Project, an online, publicly available database of every death in custody since 1991. Aboriginal people are much more likely to be in custody than non-Aboriginal people, and therefore the number of Aboriginal people who die in custody is necessarily very high. She says in around three quarters of coroner's inquest reports, race is not recorded. There is no official way of us knowing how many Aboriginal deaths in custody have occurred since 1991 because coroners do not routinely say the race of the person who has died. Tamara Walsh says there are themes across coroner's recommendations which are not heeded. Some of them are very simple. Making sure that people who are intoxicated are not held in police cells. Making sure that we're not putting people in custody unless they actually really need to be there. So many of the people in custody that we read about, there was just no need for them to be in custody in the first place. 
Professor of Law at the University of Queensland, Tamara Walsh. Rachel Hayter with that report. South Korea has announced a plan to resolve a long-standing dispute with Japan over compensation for people used as forced labour during the Japanese occupation between 1910 and 1945. It's a key step towards improving ties between the two key US allies and is being welcomed by both the US and Japan. But the plan is getting some backlash in South Korea. For more on this, I spoke to the ABC's North Asia correspondent, James Oaten. James, why has this issue of forced labour been such a source of tension between the two countries? Well, from the South Korean perspective, the people there just feel that Japan has never truly owned up to the uh, wartime damages and the damages done during its colonial occupation of South Korea. Uh, It's never really confronted this history. It's never really fully apologised and it's certainly never paid damages to those who were forced into labour for Japan back then. Now, Tokyo's had a different view. It's thought that uh, the uh, issue of forced labour from its colonial occupation was dealt with under a 1965 treaty when the two countries formalised diplomatic relations and around $500 million in aid was given to South Korea, Uh, but that's certainly not been the view from South Korea. And in 2018, some courts in South Korea actually awarded uh, victims of forced labour compensation and Japanese companies, including Mitsubishi and Nippon Steel, were meant to pay that compensation, but they refused. And then Japan got even more aggressive uh, with this issue by imposing some form of trade sanctions on South Korea. So it was a very ugly dispute between these two countries that really on face value should get along given the many similarities, both advanced democracies and advanced economies. Uh, Certainly the United States as well has made it a top priority. They want their two allies, both South Korea and Japan, to get along and to really truly deepen cooperation and certainly be able to provide a more unified front uh, against issues like North Korea and China. So what does this new deal between Japan and and Korea involve? Well, it will be a fund that's set up in South Korea and donating to the fund, well, it will be voluntary. It won't be uh, through court orders as uh, the previous uh, attempts have been. This is a voluntary fund and it seems that at least for now, that South Korean private companies will be doing the heavy lifting in donating to these to these funds, and then the funds are distributed to victims of forced labour. But South Korea has said that they believe that Japanese companies are considering making payments, and these are discussions ongoing now between Japanese and South Korean companies. It seems strange that the bulk of the money is coming from South Korean companies rather than... Japanese. It's really just trying to overcome a hurdle that they haven't been able to overcome before. Um, Forcing Japanese companies to do so wasn't working. So really this is seen as just getting a result where one wasn't being able to, uh, you know, be achieved previously. Certainly in Japan, this move is being widely welcomed uh, so far. But in Korea, uh, the opposition party there, the main opposition party, has labelled it submissive 
diplomacy and that really it's Japanese companies that should be doing the heavy lifting and compensating for these war crimes and that somehow it is in a strange way, as you kind of pointed out, South Koreans compensating South Koreans for something that Japan did many decades ago uh, and certainly victims of compensations, uh, victims of forced labour and their lawyers are saying it's a victory by Japan today. And James, as you said, the United States was very keen to see the matter resolved. Has there been any reaction from its government to this deal as yet? Yes, well, the uh, US ambassador to Japan issued a statement uh, saying that they commend both Prime Minister Fumio Kishida of Japan and President Yoon Suk-yeol for their, quote, boldness and bravery. Uh, look, this is a, a big issue for the United States to try and get resolved because, as I mentioned earlier, it, 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 on face value, there's every reason for South Korea and Japan to collaborate and deepen relations, particularly in the area of security and defence technology and nano and microchips uh, as well. So uh, if... if from the United States perspective, it wants the three countries to work better because there are some common concerns and issues in this region, North Korea being the most obvious, uh, certainly China and Russia here as well. The ABC's North Asia correspondent, James Oyton. Conservationists, scientists and international law experts are hailing a landmark UN agreement under which a third of the world's oceans will be protected zones by 2030. As Nick Grimm reports, the agreement comes after 20 years of talks stalled by disputes over funding and fishing rights. Good evening-ish. Ladies and gentlemen. They set out on a journey with hearts filled with hope and after two decades of talks, it must have seemed their destination would never hove in sight. The ship has reached the shore. It all finally changed after a marathon two-day sitting of the United Nations gathering dubbed the Intergovernmental Conference on Marine Biodiversity of Areas Beyond National Jurisdiction. Conference President Rena Lee triggering standing applause from delegates representing more than 193 nations with agreement finally sealed on a high seas treaty. Your hard work, your dedication, your commitment um, to wanting to make this a success is the reason why we are here today. The agreement lays down a legal framework for establishing marine protected areas to help stem the loss of biodiversity in international waters that currently have little protection from human activity. Nicola Clark is an oceans expert with the Pew Charitable Trust. I mean, this is huge. This is um, really, I think, a, a keystone agreement um, if, if we're going to try and protect 30% of the ocean. So uh, this agreement covers the high seas, areas beyond national jurisdiction. And the high seas make up two-thirds of our ocean, and they cover almost half of the surface of, of our planet. Um, so they're vast. Um, and if we do have a goal of protecting 30% of the ocean, the high seas need to be part of that solution. Um, and before, we didn't really have a clear pathway of protecting these areas, these international waters. Um, at least not a, not in a, a sort of fully uh, protected marine protected area or marine reserve. Um, but now that's what this new treaty does, is it gives us that um, that opportunity. It gives us the, the legal framework that we can use to establish protected areas in the high seas. The treaty, all the more remarkable given the many and diverse economic interests of the states that have agreed to sign, developing nations called for a greater share of the so-called blue economy, 
With the talks dragging out over how to share the benefits of marine genetic resources used in industries like biotechnology, Nicaragua, one of those states, unhappy with the negotiations. Furthermore, we want to uh, express our concern regarding the method of work employed that did not guarantee the equality, equity, the balance and transparency during this process with multiple parallel meetings, making it difficult for small delegations to participate, thus excluding some developing countries. Conservationists are concerned that the final agreement does have flaws, in particular provisions enabling existing bodies responsible for fisheries, shipping and deep-sea mining not to conduct environmental impact assessments of those activities. But even so, the treaty is being welcomed by ocean scientists. Oh, I was amazed, really, really amazed, because, I mean, it has taken years, well, decades. So I think it's fantastic news. Dr Christine Erber is the director of the Centre for Marine Science and Technology at Curtin University. You have a vast range of countries, from the poorest to the richest, with great ranges in coastlines and oceans, let alone, you know, access to the high seas, and different political and jurisdictional systems. So... I can just imagine that this must have been a major, major undertaking. And how difficult is it going to be to put a treaty like this into place, do you think? Well, I think that will be challenging, but also, I mean, it needs to be meaningful and manageable. So there's no point having some words in place if you now can't follow up on them and manage it and monitor it. And that's an area where Christine Erber believes Australian scientists can play an important role with surveillance of the oceans to help understand exactly how they are being used. And if you think about the ocean as an ecosystem and the food chain, often by monitoring the megafauna, the top predators, you get a window into the entire ecosystem. If the top predators are not doing well, then something is wrong in the environment and likely with the animals that sit lower in the food chain. So we can listen to these animals. We can listen to human activities. We can listen to vessels. We can listen to offshore installations, constructions, to whatever happens to you. You can't do it quietly as an industry. So Acoustics, just listening, is a way of monitoring your marine life as well as human activities in the ocean. Dr Christine Erber, the Director of the Centre for Marine Science and Technology at Curtin University. Nick Grimm reporting. Thanks for joining me for PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. You can find all our interviews and reports on the PM webpage and catch the program live or later on the ABC Listen app. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. With the growing cost of living, we'd all love to pay less in income tax. So why is there a growing number of people arguing against the so-called Stage 3 tax cuts? Today, the host of Radio National Breakfast, Patricia Carvelis, explains the biggest shake-up to income tax in decades and how the wealthier you are, the better you'll do. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.